there is an inherent power in patterns. When the human mind is aware of a pattern, it starts to have expectations. So when I first read the epilogue to A Dance with Dragons, I knew I was about to see a new point of view for one chapter, and I knew that that new POV would die. Every prologue slash epilogue character dies, you've probably noticed. In all but one case, they die in that same chapter. The Pattern of Doom is a good enough name for it, I like that. Personally, I was pretty eager and slightly anxious to find out who it would be this time, especially with the awesome Veramir Sixkins prologue relatively fresh on my mind. So what was your reaction when you saw that the epilogue to Dance with Dragons was Kevin Lannister? Let me jog your memory. It doesn't say Kevin to start the chapter, it just says epilogue. Then we see, I am no traitor, the Knight of Griffin's Roost declared. I am King Tommen's man, and yours. So one might think it was the speaker's point of view, and with all the recent action with Connington at Griffin's Roost, Storm's End, etc., Aegon the Sixth, it would make sense. But there's no inner thought for several paragraphs in which time we see we're seeing a meeting of the small council and that Kevin is the next speaker. So it could also be him. But since it's clear all five councillors are there, and guards besides, we still didn't know yet. But then at last an inner thought came on the page revealing our POV with 100% certainty, and that inner thought was Kevin Lannister's. Now, this is the power of patterns in action. As soon as you see that name, as soon as you're confirmed that it's Kevin, <laughs> you know he's going to die. Nothing in the chapter actually tells us that he's doomed. It's not like something in these first few paragraphs foreshadow his doom. It's our foreknowledge of this pattern that tells us he's doomed. It's quite sudden when it actually happens. We don't see it coming because of how this chapter is written. We see it coming because of how previous prologue slash epilogue chapters as a group were written. Anytime you know someone's going to die, there's that pseudo dread regarding the when, the how, and who, and why. It doesn't end there, though. George was taking it up a notch here, again, without any actual overt or apparent danger. Of all the characters to die in a prologue or epilogue, Kevin is way the most significant, I'd say. And because he fed us smaller fish prior to this, meaning lesser important characters died, which is a pattern within this pattern, I suppose, and it's one, one we're less likely to consciously consider. But there, nonetheless. Now consider the others. Veramir is a pretty big one. His inner thoughts tell a lot about skin changing, how it works, and the POV of a magical dude. <laughs> That's kind of new. Except for maybe Melisandre. But he's been on screen very little prior to his chapter, and he isn't very likable, to be honest. He's cool and interesting because he's supernatural. But he's a scumbag, really. There's nothing really to like about him. And we have seen skin changing before through the Starks and John. Crescent is likable enough, and we are made to feel compassion for him and to respect his loyalty and his courage, even, really. But it's made clear that he's very old and fading. Not a character to get attached to. And indeed, he does die quickly. And at that point in Clash of Kings, of course, you probably didn't know there was a pattern yet of the characters dying like that. We were all too busy getting acclimated and trying to figure out what was going on in the first prologue of the Game of Thrones, of course. We, we barely knew ye, Will. Even less than Crescent. Chet, the POV in the prologue of A Storm of Swords, well, we were eager to see him die, given his plans to murder Mormont, Sam, and plenty of others. His story of what got him to the wall in the first place, it's all pretty bad. At Feast of Crows, we have Pate, and he's gross and hapless, yet no hap whatsoever, completely without hap. Merritt Frey getting hanged in the epilogue of the Storm of Swords. Well, I actually felt a slight bit of sympathy for him, but it was pretty brief. <laughs> I shed no tears, really, and I'm guessing the vast majority of you out there felt the same. Kevin, though, by Westerosi standards, a pretty decent guy. As Varys himself says at the end, You do not deserve to die alone on such a cold, dark night. There are many like you. Good men in service to bad causes. He basically said what a lot of us were thinking, more succinctly. To be fair, some people would be harsher on Kevin. They would call him bad things, a war criminal, a scumbag, whatever you want to say. My position is relative. It's not that he's great or a good guy. It's just that the standard is really low. The behavior standard for Westeros. You don't have to be that great to be better than the rest. As Tywin's trusted right hand, his hands were, were pretty dirty, though. He was at Tywin's side for the sack of King's Landing, surely advised on the Red Wedding, 
But on the other hand, it counts for a lot with me that he is effective at creating peace and works hard at it. He's going to fail, despite his best efforts, obviously. But Varus even points out that Kevin was doing a good job. So bam, wow, an important character, dead within a few pages. That's the realization you have as soon as you know that it's Kevin Lannister POV in this chapter. Pattern of Doom is going to get him. It's like he's swimming peacefully at the beach with the Jaws music playing. Except instead of the beach, it's the Red Keep. So I stopped for a second and I wondered, how? how? Probably not a land shark like Jaws, not even a shark sigil to be seen. So that's not going to be it. What's going to do him in? He's in King's Landing, I said to myself. Who or what's going to kill him? Of course, I figured some kind of assassination was the most likely, as you probably did too, if you happened to stop and consider it at the time. But if so, who? It's a huge question. I felt a twang of pity for Kevin, too. Quickly, that feeling was gone as a more satisfying realization settled in. This is going to be juicy. So hello and welcome to the very first edition of Aziz Versus Chapter Kind of a different take on the history of Westeros style, but with a different focus. Chapter readings allow us to really hone in and get more detail and look at things in a different light, rather than a big history production or trying to figure out what's going to happen in the series. We just take a look at different things this way. Now, the origin of this was from our Patreon campaign. There's a milestone that we set in and it was achieved. And the point of it is to basically to create more episodes. That's the bottom line there. But we also wanted to try to generate some more revenue to keep the show healthy and keep it livable for us. And the best way we can think of to do that is just to make more content. Now, this first episode of Aziz vs. Chapter is for everyone. The future episodes will only be for supporters. Now, that can be as little as $1 a month. Very cheap. So, if you can afford that, I hope you can. You'll be able to enjoy the future episodes. Everything else is going to stay as it was. We'll still be putting out plenty of content. If you don't want to pay, no problem. You'll still get plenty of History of Westeros content. And after The Winds of Winter comes out, all of these will be free. We'll release all of them. So however many there are, who knows when The Winds of Winter is coming out. We'll make one of these every few months, maybe a little more often, depending on how it goes, depending on feedback, etc. New territory for us. So we'll like we, all, like we always do, we'll feel it out and make changes as we see fit. I do recommend rereading this chapter before listening to this episode. It probably enhance your experience, but if not, hey, maybe if it's fresh in your mind, no problem. So, I think you'll enjoy. This is going to be a different kind of experience with a familiar style. Let's talk a little bit about Kevin as a POV. A little bit of backstory on Kevin before we get into the chapter itself. He's about 55 or 56 years old for this chapter. His wife is Dorna Swift, so he's stuck with Sir Harry Swift as a father-in-law. <laughs> Poor Kevin. Well, more to feel sorry for him on in a minute, I suppose. Kevin and Dorna had four kids at the start of the series. Now they have three. Maybe you want to call it two and a half kids, depending on how you count Lancel. He's kind of not all there anymore, is he? Willem lives. That's the eldest besides Lancel. Lancel's the eldest. Martin was Willem's twin, but Martin is the one murdered by Lord Ricard Karstark. Their youngest, Janae, a girl, is only four. So Dorna is clearly a good deal younger than Kevin, having had a child so recently. She's not been on screen at all, that is. Dorna or Janae. Kevin is experienced, and he's been around. He's be He became a knight in the War of Nine Penny Kings. Big war. Good place to make your name. He led a company of knights after the war, charged with clearing away all the robber knights and outlaws that had infested the Westerlands under their father Titos's shall we say, weak rule. He also went around collecting debts, outstanding debts that Titos gave out because he was also free with his money and Tywin wanted to uh, recoup that. So really, think about it, that's a lot of dirty work. He did a lot of debt collecting and killing outlaws. Yeah. He amassed a small fortune of his own, too. Good for, well, good for Willem, I suppose. I don't think Lancel's going to inherit that since he's renounced his lordship of Derry and his wife as well, and has pledged himself for the warrior's son, so I suppose the inheritance goes right past him. Kevin, of course, was Tywin's right-hand man for so long, and that's how he amassed part of his fortune, both from Tywin rewarding him for his good service and from their father taking care of him. Tywin was only two to three years older than Kevin, and Kevin is the prototype loyal younger brother. Just right away when they were kids, 
Kevin basically fell in and lockstep with Tywin and has been his supporter, advocate, and helper ever since. He was never a big player himself. Well, you could say he was now in this chapter as of becoming regent. That makes him a very big player. But I guess he didn't get to hold that tenure very long. He did know all the major players at court for a long time as well. He was familiar with Ares, Rhaegar, Robert, Stannis, you name it. He's been around, been around court, etc. Not only did he know these people, but he had the benefit of Tywin's insights on them. Top level stuff there. And he had that kind of certainty in his brother that surely helped him avoid second guessing himself. This in turn makes him a wonderful mind to peek inside, so it's great to have this POV, even for such a short time. Getting such a man's opinions on such a wide variety of major plot lines is bound to be great. And it is. He's a lot to deal with, too. One thing I love about this chapter, is one of the reasons I picked it, is because almost every plot line in the entire series is touched on in one way or another during this small council meeting and afterwards, and as well as in Kevin's thoughts. Kevin has a lot to deal with. We have foes on every hand, Lord Tarly, Sir Kevin reminded him. Stannis in the north, Iron Man in the west, sellswords in the south. Defy the High Septon, and we will have blood running in the gutters of King's Landing as well. If we are seen to be going against the gods, it will only drive the pious into the arms of one or the other of these would-be usurpers. So let's see how he handles it. Kevin pulls his cloak tighter about himself in the opening paragraph, a reminder of the cold present during a litany of small council topics, kind of like having winter overshadowing everything. It's kind of a neat little underlying metaphor there. Now, giving us a POV at the small council allows for a natural discussion of several topics. To the counselors, they're the pressing issues of the realm. To us, it's like a who's who and what's what of the major plot lines. The big part of why this is such a well-regarded and popular topic. Did it why I chose it, as I said. We'll start with Connington, Aegon, and the Golden Company, since we've already dealt with that slightly. Storm's End, of course, potentially about to fall. The counselors don't know that yet. They wouldn't guess that it would fall so quickly. They think they have time. Here's what Kevin remembers about John Connington. He had known John Connington slightly, a proud youth, the most headstrong of the gaggle of young lordlings who had gathered around Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, competing for his royal favor. Arrogant, but able and energetic, that and his skill at arms was why the Mad King Ares had named him Hand. Old Lord Merriweather's inaction had allowed the rebellion to take root and spread, and Ares wanted someone young and vigorous to match Robert's own youth and vigor. Tywin said it was too soon, that he's too young. At the time, Kevin remembers that, and Tywin was right. About Connington, there's something very interesting going on, kind of underlying. Everyone knows, if you paid attention, that Aegon VI has friends in the Reach, and it's a fun guessing game to figure out who they are. I'm sure you have your opinions, we have ours. Randall Tarley seems like a very likely candidate, however, and one of the reasons is the way he behaves in this council. He constantly downplays the possibility that it's really Connington and that it's really Aegon VI. He just keeps butting in to say it. It's, con it's really interesting how much he does it. It's too many times, I think, to just be plain doubt. I think it's fake doubt. For example, Call them what you will, said Randall Tarley. They are still no more than adventurers. Later, the name Connington comes up and he interrupts. If it is John Connington, said Randall Tarley, this is two to three paragraphs later. And we hear, as for Connington, if it is him, Lord Randall said, just interrupts again. As for Connington, Tyrell repeated, Connington may have more than the Golden Company. It is said he is a Targaryen pretender, says Kevin. And here comes Tarly again. A feigned boy is what he has, said Randall Tarly. He doesn't speak up on much else, period. He has his reasons to hate Mace. Mace is arrogant about Connington and the Golden Company failure rate as well. So it makes sense for Mace to downplay the Golden Company because that's just how he is. But Tarly, there's a different game going on here. This is, this is some very strong evidence that Tarly is one of the people that might turn and join with Aegon rather than sticking with the Tyrells. One of the reasons Tarly has to hate Mace is not only did he take credit for 
Tarly's victory over Robert in the in the rebellion, but he hasn't been regarded. He hasn't been recognized for his great achievements. And he also wanted to get Brightwater Keep, which was the Florence, and they lost it because the Florence sided with Stannis. But who got it? Not Tarly's wife, who is a Florent. <laughs> Instead, it went to Garland, Mace's second son. So there's a lot of reasons for Tarly to break free. Plus, he was a Targaryen loyalist back in the day. So it lines up pretty well. So watch out for that. Now, Mace says he intends to destroy the Golden Company, but not until after the trial of Marjorie. That's important. We He thinks he has time because Storm's End is so strong, but we know Storm's End may have already fallen before the trial even begins. So what Red Ron at Connington says, in order to prove his loyalty, he says, send me against my uncle, and I will bring you back his head and the head of this false dragon too. Well, we know he's honest. We know that Red Ronan has nothing to do with this invasion. He has no contact with John Connington, had no idea he was alive. So, but I don't think he's going to get this chance. He may be sent there as part of an army, but he's not going to be leading anything. <laughs> I don't think so. They just don't trust him. Now, here's a little aside that I think is fun. Gregor Clegane's old men were with Red Ronan. <laughs> nice company to, to be keeping, huh? About 20 of them. Now, Tarly and Tyrell both argue that they should be sent to the Wall. Maybe Tarly is doing this because he doesn't want any more troops sent against Aegon. It's more of his undermining this war effort. Tyrell, however, well, that's just him being his old arrogant self. He's just doesn't, he thinks these guys are just lowborn scum. Well, he's right. The lowborn part doesn't matter, but they are scum. They're horrible people. But Kevin keeps them. He says to himself, we need all the fighters we can get to face the Golden Company. Might as well just send them first over the walls. Put them in really dangerous duty. Don't just get rid of them. We need every man. And these guys are fighters. They, you don't last with Gregor Clegane unless you can fight and do violence. Now, Tarly had already executed one of them and gelded another for murder and rape, respectively. So it doesn't have to be this whole sneaky thing. But it could just, the two things could have lined up. He came down on them hard because they deserved it, but it's also an opportunity to get them out of the way. And Kevin is thinking to himself, why doesn't Tarly realize we need every man we can get? Isn't this strange? Now, this is again a lot of evidence pointing to Tarly being potentially on Team Aegon. So keep that in mind. We'll 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 come back to that perhaps. And if we don't, certainly the books will. <laughs> if there's nothing new on that. Now, after meeting, after the meeting later. Rather, Pycelle and Harry Swift come to Kevin and they ask for guards because they're worried about what's been happening. It's the violent, troubled times and they're all worried about violence even within the Red Keep. <laughs> A little too late there. Pycelle and Kevin should have kept some himself. He starts thinking to himself, Kevin does, that maybe you... Harry Swift, go ahead and hire Gregor's men. You were thinking we needed a spot for them. Those guys can protect you, right? Eesh. Now, we can assume Swift probably didn't hire them right away upon that suggestion being made, but in the morning, he probably finds Kevin and Pycelle are dead and says to himself, well, damn, I really, really need protection now. So maybe he went and immediately got those men. And, as we see in the Mercy chapter later, there they are. And that's not so good for them. Arya takes care of one of them. So, it's funny, though, that the man they took their fears to about being murdered in the night is soon after murdered himself, right? <laughs> so, let's see who's left, though, among Gregor's men. This is a fun little thing to do. Dunson is one of them. He's one of the guys on the fringe. He's mentioned as a strong fighter, and he's clearly a survivor. We don't see him commit any real cruelties, but... He's one of Gregor's men, so he's almost certainly capable and very willing to do that. But he is on Arya's kill list still, because he's the one that took Gendry's bull helm. <laughs> and that should make him easier to spot later. See one of Gregor's men with the bull helm. See that helmet in action. You know who it is. It's Dunson. We also have Joss Stillwood, which is Gregor's squire. I believe his first appearance is bringing the sword to Gregor that cuts Gregor's horse's head off after losing Dolores. He's not on the list, but we hear of him being a rapist. 
So he deserves death one way or the other, even if it's not going to be Arya. Then there's Shitmouth. I like this guy. <laughs> He's specifically not on Arya's list for being uncruel. And he's kind of funny. He's He's got some good lines. Hopefully we get a few more of him. Now there's Polliver, the Tickler, Chiswick, Wrath, the Sweetling. Arya got two of them from herself. That's cool. Dunson, he's probably going to be dead before Arya gets a chance. But, hey, there's always some hope for that particular piece of revenge. I would find that quite gratifying, personally. It would be interesting to see if the Mountain's men, since they're at King's Landing now... What happens when they see this new Kingsguard? Surely they know who he is. But then again, a lot of other people seem to know who he is too. They just don't know what to say about it or what to do about it. But I wonder what their inner thoughts are. Like, isn't he dead? That's got to be our man, right? That's our former lord, our former commander. So they've, they've got to be puzzled. But hey, they're not alone. A lot of people are puzzled over that guy, that undead guy. They'd be so familiar with his immense size in more specific ways than most. And perhaps if his mannerisms or maybe the way he moves a little is the same, if that hasn't changed too much from being dead, it'd be really creepy. It's already really creepy. So that's a good segue to talk about Cersei's trial because Sir Robert Strong is going to be defending her. Here's a quote. Kevin thinking on Sir Robert. We do not even know if he's alive. Marin Trant claimed that Strong took neither food nor drink, and Boros Blunt went so far as to say he had never seen the man use the privy. Why should he? Dead men do not shit. Kevin Lannister had a strong suspicion of just who this Sir Robert really was beneath that gleaming white armor. A suspicion that Mace Tyrell and Randall Tarley no doubt shared. Whatever the face hidden behind Strong's helm, it must remain hidden for now. The silent giant was his niece's only hope. And that encapsulates what we're saying, too. Even though so many people likely suspect who he is and what the deal is, what's the point of bringing it up? Who benefits from him saying, This is the mountain, undead. <laughs> Broadcasting that doesn't do Kevin any good, and I can't see it doing anyone any good. First of all, people won't even believe it. So whatever, whoever faces him, though, has no chance. I really don't see this being Cersei's downfall. Cersei's downfall is sure to happen, I think, but not like this. I have far less certainty with regards to Marjorie's trial, which will not be decided by combat. Mace kind of whines about the whole situation with regard to Marjorie's trial. It's, it's kind of funny. He just doesn't seem to accept the reality of it. He just wants, basically just thinks he's above it all, thinks she's above it all, thinks that there's no way she's guilty, and just wants it to be over with. But he's prepared for the worst. He's got his soldiers there, and that's why Kevin thinks it's a basically a tightrope. If the Faith judges her guilty, what is Mace going to do with those troops? Do you think he's just going to sit there? I don't think so, personally. There's just so many of them, too. So he's someone who could really upset this balance. Kevin cannot have this kind of intra-fighting there. It's just too dangerous, given all the other situations they have. But he's afraid Mace is going to just do it no matter what. So he's really hoping Marjorie wins her trial, so that there's just no conflict. Now... There is another person who can throw a monkey wrench in this whole thing, though. There's going to be different people voting on this. And there's, of course, we're short a counselor right now. Now we're going to have another quote here. The seventh voice would be the Dornish woman now escorting Marcella home, the Lady Nim, but no lady, if even half of what Kyburn reports is true, a bastard daughter of the Red Viper, near as notorious as her father, and intent on claiming the council seat that Prince Oberyn himself had occupied so briefly. Sir Kevin had not yet seen fit to inform Mace Tyrell of her coming. The hand he knew would not be pleased. The man we need is Littlefinger. Peter Baelish had a gift for conjuring dragons from the air. So there's two things there. One, the lack of cash is an ongoing thing. They wanted to buy off the Golden Company. They need to pay back the... The Bravosi, because they can't have the Iron Bank against them. As much as Cersei thinks that's not a threat, Kevin's not so foolish. So they end up sending Harry Swift to Bravos to take care of that. Which we, we have some information on that in the Mercy chapter, of course. Now, regarding Littlefinger, it's just another example of someone underestimating him. No, Kevin, you do not want him around. <laughs> His read on Littlefinger is similar to Tywin. Maybe that's why he got the idea that Littlefinger wasn't that dangerous from Tywin, because Tywin also didn't 
considered Littlefinger dangerous. Or he considered him useful. Yeah, he was also useful, but he's really, really dangerous, as we all know. Of course, this mistake is not the only thing Kevin shares with Tywin, culminating with them sharing a crossbow bolt to the gut. The other aspect of this, though, is really big. The faith, situation with the faith, the Tyrells, and how important that is, and how much that could just blow up like a powder keg, along with so many other things in King's Landing. Do you really think that Lady Nim is going to help the situation? She, she hates the Tyrells. She hates the Lannisters. She's not going to want them to be allies. If there's a chance to divide them, like Varys is doing, she's going to help with that, or do it on her own. I could see her advising the faith and suggesting and trying to push the High Septon towards a guilty verdict. Very dangerous situation there. Also, the mention of Marcella and Dorne here comes up. These are all interconnected topics here. May suggests undoing the betrothal to Tristane, just further going down the wrong road and not getting it. It's really, you can see why Kevin is so important, because he's the voice of reason, and you can see why killing him is so big. More on that later, though. For now, what would it do if they undid the betrothal to Tristane? Kevin says, he points out that it just it could just easily push the Dornish into the hands of Aegon and Connington, just like fighting the Faith would push the Faith into the hands of Stannis or somebody else that's their enemy. So many things May suggests are just his his own bluster and his own arrogance and his own I'm better than everyone kind of attitude where Kevin is actually seeing things as where they are. He's seeing the problems. He's seeing all the alliances and all the shifting problems and how and how much of a juggling act and bouncing act this is. Whereas Mace is just, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do my thing. He's just really, he's just kind of dumb, really. Now, Harris Swift suggests with this money they don't even have, maybe buying, the, getting the Dornish to fight the Golden Company <laughs> if, if you can't buy them off. <laughs> Good luck with that. Swift's suggestions stand out in contrast to even Mace Tyrell's dumbness. I think Swift is even worse. Poor Kevin again, that's his father-in-law. Now, another really interesting small council topic that comes up. Daenerys Stormborn. Grandmeister Pycelle bobbed his head. Dragons. These same stories have reached Old Town. Too many to discount. A silver-haired queen with three dragons. Now, they had danced around it before, pun intended. May still thinks her irrelevant. She's in Marine. She's so far away. She doesn't think, he doesn't think that she's going to come anytime soon. And even if she does, they've got time to prepare. But he still blusters about if she comes, I'll be ready. He, he's, you know, not completely dismissive of her. And he, but he thinks that by dealing with other threats, that it will prepare them for Daenerys. It's sort of a, let me, I'm focusing on these other problems. And that's going to help us prepare for Daenerys, even if she, you know, even though I don't think she's really that likely to come. So it's not really preparing. It is kind of, in a sense, that it's, it's indirect preparation. He's cleaning house in case something else demands his attention. He's not specifically building defenses or thinking about how to defeat, defeat dragons, though. Nothing very specific like that. The interesting thing here is, though, there's a little miniature connection that I never noticed prior to this. Word has spread, is what we've heard, that Stormborn, the word Stormborn, Daenerys' nickname... The only time that nickname appears in all the books, outside of Danny chapters, where it happens, you see it all the time in Danny chapters, the first time it appears in a non-Danny chapter is the uh, Feast for Crows prologue in Old Town. Just like Pycelle says, we've heard stories in Old Town too. And after the Feast prologue, the only time we hear the phrase Daenerys Stormborn outside of one of her chapters is here in this epilogue. So... That's kind of cool, because what it means is, of all the many <laughs> nicknames Danny has, we know she has a ton of nicknames and titles, Daenerys Stormborn, that's the one that most of Westeros is going to be introduced to her by that name. That's what they're going to hear. They're going to hear Daenerys Stormborn, the other nicknames, maybe they get tacked on later, but that's the one that's filtering through. That's the one people are hearing. So they're remembering her birth, because that's something that dates back to her only time in Westeros. So it's kind of neat that she that her... Westerosi birth is what people remember her by. They're not calling her, they're not really referring to her as Mother of Dragons in Westeros. No one's said that yet. Not in Westeros, anyway. Now, there's some other observations Kevin has randomly um, throughout this 
small council meeting that perhaps uh, that I couldn't really attach to anything in particular. He's very struck by Mace's greed. He, he wants to add more Reachmen to the watch. He wants to add more Reachmen to the small council. He just encroaching all over the place. Here's a quote. The more I give him, the more he wants. Kevin Lannister was beginning to understand why Cersei had grown so resentful of the Tyrells. So, again, it's another one of those cases of Cersei being right in her paranoia. Uh, not that there's a lot of times she's right in her paranoia, but she's been right several times and been paranoid about it when others didn't. It's interesting. It's one of those phrases. I remember the old uh, Nirvana song. Just because they're, you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. Mm. In this case, she was right. She's been wrong plenty of times, too. But, good example of her being right. Another bit is regarding Sir Loras, who is supposedly gravely wounded on Dragonstone, possibly near death. Mace claims he searched Dragonstone thoroughly. Kevin doubts this. He, he knows Loras too well for that. He's young and brash. And if he's actually injured like this, then how could he be capable of leading any sort of search? It would be some of his subordinates. In any case, the small council meeting concludes with the cold still omnipresent. I love that the cold is always a part of this chapter, and it gets bigger and more important, especially at the climax. The next scene is dinner with Cersei. On the way to dinner with Cersei, he considers another interesting topic, the Kingsguard. A knight at the Kingsguard was always posted at its far end. The bridge leading to the Red Keep, that is. Tonight the duty had fallen to Sir Marin Trant. With Balon Swan hunting the rogue knight Darkstar down in Dorne, Loras Tyrell gravely wounded on Dragonstone, and Jaime vanished in the Riverlands, only four of the White Swords remained in King's Landing, and Sir Kevin had thrown Osmond Kettleblack and his brother Osfried into the dungeon within hours of Cersei's confession that she had taken both men as lovers. That left only Trant, the feeble Boros Blount, and Kyvern's mute monster Robert Strong to protect the young king and royal family. Well, frankly, I think Robert Strong might count for more than one, but that's still pretty weak. Kevin thinks about naming Lancel to the King's Guard. What? Come on, Kevin. I guess he's thinking of it being more honorable than the Warrior's Sons, but... Eh, it's another example of someone thinking too highly of their own family. Not a good choice. So, thinking ahead a bit, though, with Kevin dead... In a minute or two, is Cersei going to name these new Kingsguard? We saw what happened when she had charge of that the first time. That's how the Kettleblacks got in there in the first place. Robert Strong, too. Kevin's not going to be doing it, obviously, so... Well, at least there aren't any more Kettleblacks for her to add. <laughs> no choice there. Maybe she will take some advice, though. Here's another quote. His niece had been subdued and submissive since her walk of atonement. Thank the gods. The novices who attended her reported that she spent a third of her waking hours with her son, another third in prayer, and the rest in her tub. She was bathing four or five times a day, scrubbing herself with horsehair brushes and strong lye soap as if she meant to scrape her skin off. So those of us who think Cersei's path will resemble the Mad Kings in many ways, I'm certainly one of them, here's another bit of evidence for you. She seems to be going a little crazy. Well, paranoia is getting to her. It's just she's wearing down her sanity. Her is afraid. That's an interesting what if, though. Kevin felt the walk of shame was necessary. He felt that Cersei had to be, you know, brought to heel. That she was just ruining things. And he's right. Tywin, though, I suspect Tywin would have the same short-sightedness and same blind spots that he has for Cersei that Kevin has for Lancel. Just the way people are with their own children. Way too common. Kevin reflects on what his dead brother would have done, kind of lies to himself that it was necessary, but he's just trying to assuage his own guilt. But we all know that Tywin would not have handled things anywhere near the same. He would not have allowed Cersei's walk of shame to happen. That's his daughter. That's his pride. Mm -mm. He wouldn't. He would have done something. I don't know what. It's an interesting what-if question. Kevin thinks it was necessary because he's not Tywin. I don't mind him lying to himself to make himself feel better. It's a tough situation. It's not like Tywin's going to be mad at him. It's, that's gone. But we do learn that Cersei is basically under house arrest. And that kind of explains, at least in part, why she's, Kevin liked to put it, her claws have been pulled. Good analogy for a lion. 
Here's a quote. The High Septon had insisted that no girl spend more than seven days in the Queen's service, lest Cersei corrupt her. They tended the Queen's wardrobe, drew her bath, poured her wine, changed her bedclothes of a morning. One shared the Queen's bed every night to ascertain she had no other company. The other two slept in an adjoining chamber with the Septa, who looked over them. So that shows you she's really on lockdown there. There's no one sneaking into her room. There's no chance of her talking to people that she might conspire with, etc., etc. Well, she's got some inkling on how she might get back to things, though. She acts demure and laid back and that she's learned her place. She even uses that term. Kevin doesn't fully trust it. And I think he's right to. But hey, it's too late for him either way. And now another fun thing happens during the dinner, who is all, which is also attended by Tommen. Tommen talks about his cats. He's a cat person. I love hearing about cats. <laughs> We've got Sir Pounce and, and, and uh, Lady Mittens, I guess. Lady Whiskers and, and Boots. And Kevin is really pleased to hear Tommen talking about his cats. He thinks about a nice boy he is. But, of course, there's the underlying, you are not tough enough for the throne, little kid. <laughs> so, and there's also, here's where we talk about Cersei getting her, getting a little of her power back. She requests of Kevin that Taina Merriweather be returned to court and brings her son, too. She sort of paints it as something for another friend for Tommen to have, kind of not just directly pointing to what she's really after, which is Taina was helping her with spying and insight and things like that. Of course, Taina's probably, almost certainly, a double agent of some kind, not loyal to Cersei, loyal to somebody else. Without talking about who that might be, it's not in Cersei's best interest, so I think it's kind of funny that Cersei is trying hard to bring back somebody that's bad for her. Kind of like Kevin wanting to bring back Littlefinger. Hmm, these people... And, of course, Cersei asks about Tyrion. She wants to know if there's been any word. Kevin says no. No one's tried to sell us any dwarf heads lately. <laughs> now, Cersei also refuses to believe anything could possibly have gone wrong with Jaime at this point. She is confident that she would feel it if he left this world. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do think she's right. Jaime left his army in the Riverlands, ran off with Brienne, went to Lady Stoneheart, presumably... We're all waiting to see what happens there. But I think Cersei's right. Jamie's alive. He's not going to die off screen. I don't I, Jamie, no way. Now, the Kettle Blacks come up again, and they remind me a bit of the Toins. It is a good spot to talk about how there's often historical parallels with major characters. Sometimes there's historical parallels with the minor characters. And these historical par parallels are often very tight. A lot they have in common. So much so that they're often like foreshadowing. In fact, I just had an email conversation with a listener about this very topic, very serendipitous that it occurred a day or two before this recording. And I already had some of this material in here. I was able to just, hey, I was just thinking about this. For example, Jamie Lannister is a lot like Aemon the Dragon Knight. There's a lot of parallels there. And that also ties in with this whole connection between the Kettle Blacks and the Toins. Let me explain. The Toins were a fairly important Stormland house. Back in the day, and in Aegon the Fourth time, one of them was named the Kingsguard, Terence Torn. Terence, well, he slept with the king's mistress and was caught, tortured to death. Yeah, pretty bad. And the Toyn brothers, surviving Toyn brothers, tried to kill Aegon the Fourth. They tried to assassinate the king in revenge. They were, of course, stopped by Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, who was killed in the process. But the, since Eamon and Jamie maybe have a parallel, maybe this would happen. Maybe Jamie will die trying to stop Tommen from being killed or even Cersei. Of course, if that happens, then Jamie can't be the one to actually kill Cersei. And that's how a lot of people think the Valonqar prophecy is going down. So I tend to favor something along the other lines. Now, of course, the, the way this parallel completes itself is by showing that this ter Sir Terence Toyn was tortured to death. Well... Look what happened to the Kettle Blacks, tortured by the Faith, sleeping with Cersei, similar to sleeping with the King's Mistress. It's not the exact same thing, but it's pretty close, and the trouble they got into is similar. So, we'll see how that resolves, but at least you have some idea of how it might go. Dinner is interrupted at that point. A messenger arrives. Here comes the ominousness, but if you're reading the book, 
Nothing about the message arriving is ominous. It's just a message. Hey, Picel wants to talk to you. And they think of what else it might be. It might be news of Lord Bolton. It might be news of anything. Who knows? Sorcy, of course, is hoping it's news of James. Here's where we get a little bit of irony. Before he took his leave, he dropped to one knee and kissed his niece upon the hand. If her silent giant failed her, it might be the last kiss she would ever know. Whoops. That's nice of you, Kevin, but you had that backwards. It's the last kiss you'll ever know. Now, why kill him? Why did Varys kill him? Let's talk about that. Well, Varys explains it himself. I don't need to even analyze it, because Varys just lays it out for us. You are threatening to undo all the Queen's good work, to reconcile Highgarden and Casterly Rock, bind the faith to your little king, unite the Seven Kingdoms under Tommen's rule. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a good reason to kill him, Varys, I guess. And it's clear from this chapter, I think, I've laid it out pretty well, I hope, that Kevin is one of the few clear-headed people left in charge. And that's exactly why Varys targeted him. He's also one of the few people thinking about peace and succeeding in making some progress towards it, despite so many things working against him. Mace is mostly about his personal ambitions, his pride, and he's an idiot. Tarly? Surly? Warlike? Possibly disloyal? Swift? Well, we talked about him. He's just fairly pathetic and not very useful. Pycelle? Well, he's a Lannister toady. A loathsome man, but he's useful and not without influence, if you're Kevin. In his case, though, his usefulness was in his corpse. It helps Varys so to score between Lannister and Tyrell even more than, or as much, well, along the same lines as this murder of Kevin. What is going to be the fallout from Kevin's death? I think that's really important to think about what's going to happen because of this. We know why Varys did it. How is it actually going to play out? Now, in a Game of Thrones, Arya overhears Varys and Illyrio chatting about their plans, and we get some important tidbits. In particular here, I want to draw your attention to how important timing was to them. That's one of the things they talk about. No, it's too soon. No, you know, hurry up. No, delay. They, they kind of argue about what's happening. And, of course, these are world-moving things that are happening around them, and they're trying to control. It's like trying to rope the wind, but these are experts. They're really good at what they do. But the bottom line is that for them is that it's crucial that the realm be disorganized, lacking a coalition powerful enough to defeat Aegon. They're trying to set that stage. They want him to come in and rescue the realm. Lannister and Stark going to war back in Game of Thrones was not good because they were not ready. They need that to happen closer to the time of Aegon's coming. And that was still, well, several books away, a couple years in that case. You could say that the time was not nigh. But by this epilogue, winter may be coming, but Westeros is ripe. The time may indeed be nigh. We'll say it's a quarter to nigh, or so. By taking out Kevin, the only competent recognized leader, the house falls back into the hands of the one Lannister least likely to present a challenge to Aegon's invasion. That's Cersei. In fact, given how Cersei is... <laughs> she's probably an indirect ally of Aegon. She's just gonna make, just gonna piss people off and through her misrule, she'll just recruit soldiers for Aegon by being so terrible. Her potential for folly is great enough for that sort of thing to happen. Just ineptness, creating assets for Aegon. It's amazing. Varys knows what he's doing. Now, there's something about this scene that's perhaps a little unusual, and for some people, they even find it a little off-putting. It's, it's been debated a bit in the fandom. Not me personally, I, I think it's fine, but what I've heard it, I've heard it said a few times, it's worth addressing. And it's the exposition here in this final scene. It can be argued that the way Varys explains his plans is a bit pointless. Who's he talking to? Why is he telling Kevin all these things? Kevin has a mortal wound. What's the point? Isn't, isn't he worried someone's going to overhear? Well, first of all, Varys is not worried about someone overhearing. He's, he's the one who overhears things, and Littlefinger's nowhere nearby. He's got that all under, under control. But this is just how Varys is, you know, put very simply. He's just a really polite guy. He talks a lot. It's just his personality. He explains things. He's forthcoming. Except when he's not. But he's certainly shown it enough times that I believe it. But in any case, whether it's realistic or not, or whether there's more to it, it turns into a really great breakdown. His, his exposition explains things so well 
what Varus thinks will happen as a result of Kevin's murder. So let's get his take on it. Your niece will think the Tyrells had you murdered, mayhaps with the connivance of the imp. The Tyrells will suspect her. Someone somewhere will find a way to blame the Tarnishman. Doubt, division, and mistrust will eat the very ground beneath your boy king, whilst Aegon raises his banner above Storm's End and the lords of the realm gather round him. Now consider Kevin's thoughts on the makeup of the small council in combination with his death. The last thing I need is another Tyrell on the small council. He was already outnumbered. Sir Harry's was his wife's father, and Pycelle could be counted upon as well. But Charlie was sworn to Highgarden, as was Paxter Redwine, Lord Admiral and Master of Ships, presently sailing his fleet around Dorne to deal with Euron Greyjoy's ironmen. Once Redwine returned to King's Landing, the council would stand at three and three, Lannister and Tyrell. Not so much, Kevin, actually. We're looking at three Tyrells and one Lannister, and that one gone to Bravos. A big question to ask is who will fill those empty spots? Look at how much Cersei fretted and schemed over those seats in the past. We might be looking at a repeat there. No Pycelle to help her, and now no Kevin either. So she's really alone. That's probably going to increase her paranoia. Speaking of Pycelle, George knew he had given away Kevin's death by the pattern of doom, of course. So he had to hit us with another important one, as like a curveball, something we didn't see coming. Since the manner of Kevin's death wasn't going to be surprising enough, might as well hit us with another one. What a finish, really. I think the way this chapter ended has a really disproportionate effect on our excitement for the next book. Not just because it's a great ending with a great reveal and a big death, but because so many things were covered in this chapter. It just encompasses everything. As far as a Grand Maester, it might take them a, a little bit of time to reach King's Landing, what's happening, given what's happening in Old Town and all. And you, you can't say Pycelle was crucial, but he was on Team Lannister very solidly. So it's a good thing for Aegon VI, if that's who you're rooting for. But let's get to Kevin's actual death. Right after he's shot, we have this. Sir Kevin was cold as ice, and every labored breath sent a fresh stab of pain through him. He glimpsed movement, heard the soft scuffling sound of slippered feet on stone. A child emerged from a pool of darkness, a pale boy in a ragged robe, no more than nine or ten. Another rose up behind the Grand Maester's chair. The girl who had opened the door for him was there as well. They were all around him, half a dozen of them, white-faced children with dark eyes, boys and girls together. And in their hands, the daggers. Now, as a whole, let's look at this chapter. Uh, like I've been saying throughout this, ep at this episode, every plot line is touched on, at least in a little way. Even the ones that are indirectly touched on, they're, they're there too. Kevin's pending doom is the hook to start the chapter off with a rush. But it is unparalleled in another way because of all the coverage. It's so expansive. It goes so much beyond Kevin and Pycelle's death. We get connections and discussions to everything. Let's go through it a little bit. Of course, they discuss the various claimants to the throne, starting with Aegon VI, Connington, the Golden Company. They discuss Euron Greyjoy in Old Town, Stannis and the North, even Daenerys and her dragons. Then, of course, the trials, Marjorie's and Cersei's both. With that, of course, that includes the High Septim, the Sparrows, Sir Robert Strong. We have Sir Robert going to, sorry, Sir Harry Swift going to Bravos. So there's Arya, indirectly. Kevin thinks of how badly they could use Littlefinger, so there's him. And of course, he's not aware of Sansa, so her name doesn't come up, but we do get Littlefinger, so there's our connection. Of course, again, it's not Kevin's brightest moment thinking they could use Littlefinger. <laughs> and we're reminded that the Kettleblacks are in deep trouble. That could impact Sansa as well, because their father is there, and he might turn on Littlefinger in order to save his sons, because Littlefinger doesn't care about his sons anymore, I'm assuming. There's even mention of Jamie being lost in the Riverlands still, and it's been quite a while. He's been lost. We even get Tommen and his cats, which gives us an indirect connection to the old Targaryens. <laughs> There's mention of Dorne, Lady Nim, Sir Balon's pursuit of Darkstar... It's really a great way to summarize what's happening all around without using a narrator or some other awkward device. Good job, George. There's more, though. Dark wings, dark words, Sir Kevin thought. Could Storm's End have fallen, or might this be word of from Bolton in the north? It might be news of Jamie, the Queen said. No one in King's Landing knows what's happening on the wall. But George finds a clever way to bring it up, as Kevin sees an icicle fall. Autumn in King's Landing, he brooded? What must it be like on top of the wall? 
It's bad, Kevin. Real bad. Awful a bit south of the wall for Stannis, actually. It's probably a bigger problem than anything you discussed at council or at dinner. In fact, you're underestimating it yourself. It's not Autumn at all. But he does at least figure that out on his own quickly enough when he sees the White Raven in the window in Pycelle's study before he's seen Pycelle's death in the Four Zone, of course. Winter, said Sir Kevin. The word made a white mist in the air. He turned away from the window. Before this, the cold is mentioned several times. It's building up this moment, really. It's getting bleak already. Now we know it's going to get much worse. Much, much worse. But just as our attention, and Kevin's, is drawn to winter as a topic, which we know is the most important topic of all. It's like saving the best for last or most important for last. It's a perfect segue to the next book, after all, entitled The Winds of Winter. But no. Bam. Just as our attention is drawn to that, Kevin is shot. Then something slammed him in the chest, between the ribs, hard as a giant's fist. And just like that, just as, just like us, the readers, are drawn away from the onset of winter by something major happening that demands our attention, it's the, it's a microcosm of what all of Westeros is doing. They should be focused on winter. They should be focused on the north. They should be focused on the others. But no, they're focused on the Iron Throne. And that's what's happening in the scene. Kevin sees the White Raven. He thinks of winter, but before he can dwell on that, he's shot. And it's the reason he's shot is because of the Iron Throne. It's about who's sitting on the Iron Throne. It's a political assassination inside the capital. It's a huge deal, even though we knew it was coming. Fighting over the Iron Throne, that's a bit of a pattern too, right? It would be better to call it a recurring theme, perhaps, rather than a pattern. But the point is that we see it coming. We've all known, we readers, since the very beginning, basically, that Westeros should be united to face what's to come, not tearing themselves apart. They're essentially paving the way for the others here. But this moment in this chapter is the confluence of those themes, overshadowed by the pattern of doom. Many things we knew would happen, happened within a few seconds. Winter arrived, the fledgling stability of the Iron Throne was shattered, and the pattern of doom played out all with one crossbow bolt. <laughs> so fast. Knowing the pattern of doom exists doesn't mean you still can't be surprised, right? I mean, that was surprising. We knew the what, Kevin's gonna die, and the when. This chapter, probably the actual last sentence or so, and that turned out to be about right. But the how, the who, and the why, we had no idea. Those were all revealed in short order by the actions and explanation of the architect of this assassination, Lord Varys the Spider. <laughs> Forget fire and ice, we have spider and ice this time. Varys is the real ice spider, right? No. <laughs> Here's where we all need to remember that we're dealing with a master. I don't mean Varys, though he's clearly a master. I mean George himself. This pattern, hmm, watch out. He knows he's laid out this pattern of doom. He knows that we know the pattern, which means if he wants, he can break the pattern as a way of surprising us. He might be setting us up, and that would be cool. The beauty of it is that it'll be surprised even if you know this possibility. Even now that I've explained this to you and you'll be aware of it, it's still going to be a surprise. Because even if the next prologue, character, in The Winds of Winter, say, gets the ultimate lucky bastard reprieve by George and actually lives, even makes it through the whole book, no technicalities here, how will you feel during the epilogue? You're still going to expect the character to die, you'll just have a glimmer of doubt because, well, one survived now. Or maybe it's hope instead of doubt, because you want this character to live, whoever they might be. And wouldn't that just be a twist? Just when you think the pattern is in place, George puts a character we love as the T-Wow epilogue point of view, but this time there's hope that they might live. Ugh! And then the character probably dies anyway, and <laughs> we're back to where we were. Damn it. <laughs> but in simpler terms, we're all so familiar and bought into A Song of Ice and Fire that really, if you think about it, we're so at George's mercy right now. <laughs> there's so many ways he can play with our emotions the rest of the way. For now, we bid adieu to Kevin, who died surrounded by basically every plot point in a way that could just impact just about all of them. What a way to set us up for the rest of the series. The future for Westeros is dark, but the future of A Song of Ice and Fire is bright. Thanks for listening to the very first episode of Aziz vs. Chapter. We, I have some thanks to make. Of course, thanks to Ashea. If, if she's ever not beside me, you can almost guarantee she's behind the camera. And, of course, that's really important. Thanks to Michael Clarfeld for the intro and Joey Townsend for the music. And to our Patreon supporters. For once, I'm going to read every 
Patreon supporters nickname. That'll be fun. There's a lot of cool ones that have never been read on the show before. And since this is our very first episode, and this episode is because of the Patreon supporters, why not? Let's do it. And stay tuned after this, because I've got a few more things after the credits, a couple meta-analyses, and one or two fun tidbits. First Lord Cash Craig, Hand of the King, Lord of Mines, Lord of Makers. Lord Jim, the fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville, the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad, and Warden of the East. Lord John Reed of Castle Woodbridge, the Lord Borealis, the Light of the North, and Warden of the North. We are currently without a Warden of the South. Outside the realm, we have Rory the Rogue, Archer Extraordinaire, and King Beyond the Wall, recently subjugated the tribes of the Eastern Frontier and the Beyond the Wall. Our small council is Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers, Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Coin, Rosie the Clever, Master of Laws, and Lord James Tuttle, Master of Ships. We have Lady Diarliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains, and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt, Lord of Castle Ganges, Cabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks, and Castle Crimson Light, Lord Damien Sand, the Resilient, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Spear Swan Song. Mary Meg, Lady of the Bloody Stepstones. Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood, Lady of the Desert Rose. Jeffrey the Unflinching, Lord of Sand Lake. Lord Greybay of the Queen City. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate, Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland of Devil's Hand Keep. Lord Brandon Slate, the North's Hammer, Harbinger of the Old Gods. Lady Bram, Light of Winter's Garden, Beacon of the Northwest. First Sword, Joshua Hayescutter, called Joshua the Raw. King's Justices, Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. We also have Lord Eric Richardson, Lord James Saunders of the Chicken Song, and Lord Barone of the Halls. Our Kingsguard is commanded by Lord Commander Shepard. We also have Sir Andrew the Prophet, the longest-tenured White Sword, Sir Paul Greenhand, Sir Dolorous D, Sir Darren the Red, Knight of the Forums, Elia of New York, and Lady Ola, the Amber Knight. Maesters of the Citadel include... Archmaester Itai, Archmaester Faso, Archmaester John the Just, Archmaester Josh, whose rod and ring and mask are Valyrian steel, Archmaester Tuhill, Archmaester Masson, whose ring and rod and mask are pale steel, Archmaester Huglin, whose ring and rod and mask are red gold, Archmaester Scott, whose ring and rod and mask are black iron, Maester Savvy, Archmaester Marie the Rose, Woods Witch Whirlane Dervis, sworn to House Reed, Keeper of the Secrets of Greywater Watch, Maester Harbaugh, ever winning, Archmaester Civilization X. Ancient Archmaester Thurian, known erringly as the Warlock of the North. Lucifer means Lightbringer, High Priest of the Church of Starry Wisdom. Greenseer Cat of the First Men. Maester Lynn, the Water Maven, servant to even Fall Hall. Weaver of the Broken Syllable. Lord of Bull's Meadow. Dana, the Dreamy, Witch of the Dark Teutonic Woods. Sabrillian, Hair to the Nettle Vault Tomes. Shadowbinder Jasmine, Lady of House Dane. NOV, Shadowbinder from the Eastern Mountains and Lakes. Euron Kauzai, the Maid of the Silver Spring. Jerry, the Targaryen Steamboat. Alyssa, Keeper of the Werewood Archives. Archmaester McMonkey, whose ring and rod and mask are Tainite. Cellsword captains include Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, Captain of the Werewood Wanderers to Long Lives, Quick Deaths, Cold Beer and Warm Women. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, Captain of the Red Tide, Resistance is Futile. Garion Pike, wielder of Grave Embrace of Valyrian Steel Axe, and Captain of the Iron Wave. Iron's Kiss is Eternal. Captain Darton of the Mother's Men. Our Northern Champions include Jay Wilson, Winter's King, Stephen Hill, Bastard of the Crag, Sir Stephen, the Hammer of the North, Small Paul of House Buckland, the Scourge of Skagos, and Winter's King. Followers of the Seven include Sir Rob the Earthquake, Lady Lily Twinflower of House Melrose. And now a list of sworn swords. Sir Adam Hill of Silverheath, the first sword. Cold Hands of House Glover. Claudius the Fool, vassal of Kingsgrave, sworn to House Manwoody. Sir Eric Coldiron, Eric Stillwell, Jeff of House Bolton, the Bastard of Burnside. Sir Chris of the Golden Gate. Sir Joshua Seventides. Sir Daniel Blacksilk of House Weber. Brendan Beefish. Sir Christopher the Clever. Sir Clayson Six Fingers. Thomas the Woodhead. Sir Jim Gannon. Sir Scott Kettleblack. Black Eye Dilly. Adisua, the Silver Tree of Ingrith. Sorry, the single Silver Tree. Ingrith, the Silver, the Scorpion of Salt Shore. Weeping Lady Elise, Breaker of the Third Stone. Sir Richard Longstrider of Farhelm. Sir Rorlad of Anmulak Moor. Sir Jungfrau, the Strider. Lady Nightwind, the Sworn Sword of Greywater Grotto. Sir Alderic of the Sapphire Tower. Sir Brian, aka Big Nacho. 
Merriweather, Gypsy the Wolf, Lady Priscilla of the White Spear, Lady Angelica, the Hyena of Hellholt, Master of the Twin Centuries, Lady Andrea Blackstone of Relay, Mistress of Tides, Savorium, War Mage of the Pale Child and Disciple of Bacalon, Sir Grievous of Crackclaw Point, the Secret Darkling, now our members of the Night's Watch. Sir Com- Lord Commanded. Lord Commander is George the Golden. First Ranger is Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield. We also have Sir Brad of Chicagoland. Sir Adam the Consummator. Aaron Sixskins. Sir Justin the Small. Cabeso. Sir Alexander of the Shire. Sir McCall Blackwood. Lisa the Witch in the Western Woods. Trisha of Dragonstone. Christopher, Ward of the Wild. Sir Shaquille, Father of Kraken. Christian, the Disgrace, Warrior of the Bone Mountains. Sir Alexander Greencloak, Skyon of Snow River, Anissa, the Raven of Frostholm, Mester Builder John from the Summer Isles, Matt of House Metzer, the Rolling Knight, Enfriel of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, Lady Clover, Juniper, Spearwitch of Long Barrow. Also Bloody Blake the Avatar, Snow Lisi, Sir Landale Ironwood, Javi Marcos of Podcasty Hielo y Fuego, Mertes Silverheel, the Maze Runner, Sir Shags the Honeymouth, Sir Lil Chick from the Apple of Enois. <laughs> Peggy, Librarian of the North. Jenny Girl of Old Stones, Keeper of Old Nan's Pale Spiders. Sir Andrew of Whitehall, Red Fort's Weapon Master. Making Young Lords Strong as Stone. Lady Hannah of the Maiden Fair of Bear Island. And Westeros, Indonesia. Now, in the future, episodes of Aziz vs. Chapter will be voted on by patrons. Again, it only takes a dollar in a month to support the show and you get access to future episodes of this. I've got some ideas on which chapter it might be. Here's a short list of ones I might do. Uh, Jamie and Brienne in the bathtub scene, that chapter. Uh, Jamie's fever dream, where he rescues Brienne shortly after, where he sleeps on the weirwood stump. Oberyn's arrival in, Tyri- uh, in a, song of, a Song of Swords. We have the Ghost of High Heart scene, which is Edric Dane Jon Snow's reveal is included in that. We have the Meeting of Stoneheart by Brienne. In the hanging. <laughs> Another one, Samwell 5, where we meet Marwyn in A Feast for Crows. Uh, Blood Raven's Introduction in a Dance with Dragons, Brand 2. And the North Remembers chapter, Davos in a Dance with Dragons. Melisandre's chapter. And the Ghost in Winterfell chapter of Theons. A lot of possibilities. Such a wide range of character and setting and scenarios from POV to POV. We get to scale our style of analysis based on the particular variables in play. It's pretty cool. We get to look at things in a different way. We can make theories. We can focus on intrigue, personal conflict, macro politics, magic, literary themes, symbols, you name it. That's the fun thing about chapters is we get to mix things together rather than focusing on one topic. So I, I hope you guys like this and I hope we can make a lot more of them. One or two last things before we close this out. I highly recommend a Tower of the Hand for chapter breakdowns and chapter analysis as far as ratings to see which ones are the most popular. I took a look at their thing. A lot of people have voted on which chapter is their favorite. This chapter checks in as the number three chapter period in all the books. Most popular. 9.23 rating out of 10. Very high. The number one chapter, by the way, the North remembers. And the next is Theon 1. Not... In the dance with, rather, Theon won in Dance of Dragons. Theon won. Not his first chapter, but the first chapter where he's back to being Theon again. And the Tyrion meeting the Viper, uh, is fourth. And Danny's House of the Undying is fifth. So, one last recommendation. Since we're doing chapter readings, occasionally, I have a, a cool idea for how to really get into a chapter. What you do is, I don't know, I need a good name for it. If you guys come up with a name for this, let me know. It's kind of cool. I'll call it, for now, I'm just gonna call it a power read. And it's when you listen to the audiobook while reading the chapter. Sensory overload of A Song of Ice and Fire, but you really, really get it. It gets in your head in different ways, your subconscious. So if you need a way to get this on audio, I highly recommend going to historyofwestros.com, clicking on the Audible 30-day trial in the far right corner on the sidebar. It will get you a free 30-day trial of Audible, including one free book download. So if you want to test this out, see if it works for you, see if reading and listening at the same time works, get Game of Thrones for free, get Dance with Dragons for free. Even if you don't want to keep the subscription to Audible, you get to keep that download. You paid nothing. 30 days to try it out. And we get a little kickback if you use our link to do it. So that's a good way to support the show. 
Of course, we're also back on... Uh, we've, we've switched our iTunes feed recently, so if you can't support the show financially, you can always leave us an iTunes rating or just send us an email and say, hey guys, you're doing good, because that matters to us too. Everything helps. Spread the word, whatever you can do. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate you joining in for the first episode of Z's versus Chapter. I'm excited that we got to do this. And I hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time. Valar Morgulis.